0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: In an early scene of the hit musical Hamilton, the eponymous founding father and three friends meet in a tavern to declare their loyalty to the revolution. They grow progressively more drunk on beer and dreams of overthrowing the British. One of the drinking fellows... And a main character in this great tale of American independence is, in fact, French. Lafayette, based on the real-life revolutionary Marquis, is an emblem of France's crucial role in America's fight for sovereignty, a role that earned it the title of the US's oldest ally. But the ties of this historical alliance are strained after the French reacted furiously to America's security pact with Australia and the UK, awkwardly acronymed AUKUS. As the Pentagon and the State Department tilt their focus away from mainland Europe, was provoking French ire worth it? This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prideau, The Economist's US editor. Each week we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, why is AUKUS such a big deal? Occasionally, you can see big shifts in foreign policy happen right before your eyes. The unveiling last week of the Trilateral Defence Pact between Australia, the UK and the United States provides one of those rare occasions. It's America's biggest demonstration yet of a determination to counter what it sees as a growing threat from China. What does AUKUS tell us about the US government's changing priorities? With me to discuss all of this are John Fasman, the US digital editor, and Charlotte Howard, the economist's New York bureau chief. Charlotte, you're back. Hooray.
2: Can I have that drum roll every time I'm on the podcast? That was great.
1: Yeah, whenever you want, as long as you don't disappear again.
2: If you could just come with me also as I enter meetings and then just stand there with the drum roll recording. <laughs> um it's great to be back i missed you fools it's it's nice to see you
1: um Fosman it's nice to see you as well obviously but i've seen you more recently how how are things with you things are good i'm very happy to see
3: charlotte it feels like the world is is right again charlotte how is baby francesca doing
2: she's great she doesn't sleep so she's coasting by on her good looks but she's at an age when she looks kind of like a uh a super-sized gnocchi, which is good. She's very cute.
3: That's good. In my late 40s, I'm heading toward a sort of hairy, bald gnocchi shape myself. So it comes back.
2: <laughs> it's like a catchaway peppy gnocchi for Fasman.
1: Right. <laughs> well, I think this may be the only podcast on the whole of the internet where you'll find a discussion both of gnocchi and of nuclear submarines in the same episode. Charlotte, a lot has been going on while you've been away. France and America had this huge diplomatic spat. France withdrew its, recalled its ambassador from Washington and also from Canberra. Things have been patched up a little bit since then. John, before we go any further, can you briefly explain what's in this pact, AUKUS? Sure. The biggest part of the pact
3: was an agreement by America to provide Australia with the technology that would give it nuclear-powered, though not nuclear-armed submarines. And this is a big deal because America has only done it once before it shared this technology with the Royal Navy. That was more than 50 years ago.
2: The thing that's interesting about AUKUS and the fallout from AUKUS is that it gets at a few really big questions for the global order. One is, can America effectively contain China's aggression in Asia? What is the nature of America's relationship with Europe? Is America an ally to be trusted and is the European bloc uh, a group of countries that can or should want to even stand on its own in this shifting international order where more and more attention is being paid to the big rivalry with China? And so all of those themes were blown up this week in the AUKUS deal and the fallout from the deal.
1: Yeah, right. So the first time that nuclear propulsion technology has been shared since the 50s. I've been speaking to Daniel Franklin, who's The Economist's diplomatic editor, and I asked him what made the US share this technology again now?
4: Well, what it really shows is a fundamental shift in the strategic calculations of the United States to do with the rise of China and to do with the sense that this is where the action is going to be This is the challenge of the 21st century, if you like. It represents a very long-term commitment to signal to China that America is uh, beefing up its alliances in the region and uh, moving to uh, stand up to China in what is, in essence, a maritime uh, area of competition. For the Australians, it's a big bet on the American alliance for the future. They've been very worried about the Chinese. They've been Um, bullied by China in recent years, most strikingly uh, over their demand for a a COVID, an independent uh, investigation into the origins of of COVID-19. But on many other matters, too, it's the sort of heavy handed approach that China has taken that has convinced Australia that they need to find a way of pushing back uh, against this and to do this in a long term relationship with America with far superior technology. Uh, it is a striking move. Uh, so it really is one of those rare occasions where you can see the sort of tectonic plates of geopolitics changing in front of your very eyes.
1: France is furious about this, and it's understandable why the French government is so cross. It feels betrayed by an ally, says it's been lied to. Was there a way to do this deal, to make this pact without infuriating France? And from an American point of view, is it clear that the upside in terms of power projection perhaps in Asia or strengthening the alliance with Australia is worth the damage to the relationship with France?
4: It was probably inevitable that the French would be upset, Um, although it has to be said that there had been lots of difficulties with their own submarine deal. So if the French had been reading the signs, they might have taken a bit more seriously the, the, the troubles that this deal was in. And um, they might have assumed, as I think most Australians assume, that it was simply too big to be allowed to to break down and perhaps were a bit complacent about that. However, this was deeply difficult for the French because they've been so assiduously building up relationships with Australia. They only last month, they had a a meeting at senior ministerial level, defence and foreign ministers, full of Uh, Bonhomie and promises, pledges of the need for closer cooperation in all sorts of areas, including stressing the importance of uh, the submarine programme. So the fact that this for months was going on behind their backs, that hurts badly. It also hurts badly because the Indo-Pacific is a a, a crucial strategic priority for the French. They are, in fact, Australia's neighbours. They have territories um, in the form of island possessions or island territories Uh, in 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 the region they keep permanent troops there they have lots of nearly two million citizens in in the region and they've been making it a a, a higher and higher priority uh, in recent years Daniel taking
1: a really long view of this lots of people worry about the potential for superpower conflicts between America and China at some point down the road there was the book published a few years ago the Thucydides trap which had this as its thesis and it's quite a popular one From the Australian point of view, the AUKUS deal is about deterrence, right, and and deterrence against an aggressive China. From the Chinese point of view, no doubt, it looks like American or Australian aggression. So how do you think about whether AUKUS makes conflict with China eventually less likely or or more likely? And, And sort of how would we know?
4: I think this is always the difficulty in, in the deterrence because one person's deterrence looks like another's uh, aggression to the to the to the party on the other side. Uh but in order to to stand up to China more um a, a more robust posture is probably what's needed and uh, these submarines are going to take many many years to come into into play so it's not as if there's going to be a a, a conflict involving them Anytime soon, but it is a a long term signal that what had seemed to be one way traffic, China relentlessly building up its uh, military maritime presence in the region and uh, looking to tip the balance as the dominant power in the region, this is a major move against that. And there are many countries around the region which are pretty pleased with that. I think uh, uh, India, uh, Japan are, are among them. They're the other players, along with Australia and United States in the so-called Quad grouping that's having its first in-person meeting this week in uh, Summit in Washington. A series of alliances are forming. This is part of a sort of patchwork of resisting China's dominance, if you like. So it could raise risks if, if there is a, a showdown over Taiwan, for example. That's one of the great Fears, But the alternative, I suppose, if you're one of the countries that fears China's Chinese dominance, is just letting China have its way in future. And that's not something that clearly the Australians or the Americans have decided they're prepared to do.
1: Charlotte, a lot of the coverage of AUKUS and the fallout from the pact focused on the rift within the transatlantic alliance between France and the US. But doesn't that rather miss the bigger point? I mean, to me, at least, it seems that China has scored a huge own goal here, that by being so confrontational towards Australia, particularly last year, when China put a sort of informal trade embargo on Australia, it was really trying to push it around. It seems to have pushed Australia closer to America. And the net result is, it looks like there will be in the 2030s, nuclear-powered submarines patrolling the waters not too far away from China. I mean, it's a huge own goal for China's sort of aggressive approach to diplomacy, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it is. And one thing to remember about the relationship between Australia and China is that, of course, there's the military aggression that China is taking in the Indo-Pacific region. But, of course, Australia and China are huge trading partners. And to your point, China was really amazingly aggressive with some of the trade barriers that it was putting in place. Australia is an exporter of raw materials to China. And I think that focusing on the economic component of China's aggression as well as the military aggression is important. And this is an area where I think we'll have to continue to watch to see how America in its deals that Daniel described in these growing alliances as they continue to evolve and beef up We'll have to continue to watch what economic measures are put in place. President Obama, of course, pursued the Trans-Pacific Partnership as a way to try to pivot to Asia, as a way to build economic alliances throughout the region and protect America's interests in Asia. That's become basically politically toxic. But you still do have the successor to the TPP, which is now called the CP TPP. Um, Somewhat confusingly, it sounds like a character in Star Wars. But that deal still does exist, and China wants in. So I think one thing that will be interesting to watch from the fallout from this, the announcement of this deal is what are the economic measures that China seeks to pursue as it tries to join that reconfigured trade alliance? What are the continued trade deals that America might pursue, or what types of economic steps might the Biden administration try to pursue to build up the commercial alliances as a counter to China's economic heft
3: in the region? I think Charlotte makes a very good point about China's self-wounding diplomatic style. I covered Southeast Asia for three years, from 2014 to 2017, and the depth of resentment that countries there, not just governments, but, but ordinary citizens there, had toward China was just immense. And some of it is, of course commercially driven bigotry of long standing but some of it was actual you know justified pique at China's bullying diplomatic style so while this is news it's not entirely a surprise that australia would want a bigger security guarantee from the united states that they would want someone else in in their corner I think that the further we get from the 2016 election, when free trade suddenly became toxic, the more prescient and smarter Obama's decision to pursue the TPP looks. We can see that because the CPTPP is coming back into existence. This is a sensible way to contain China commercially. Um, I know that China wants in, they won't get it, but they can still cause some mischief in the margins. And so I think what we've seen with this deal is the pivot toward Asia that Obama promised, but never quite delivered. We've seen where America's foreign policy is going to be centered in the near and probably the medium term.
1: Charlotte, there's a lot of waffle talked about foreign policy, and I'm keen for us not to add to it here. But a few weeks ago, Their headlines were all about how flaky America was abandoning allies in Afghanistan. And now their headlines, at least if you pay attention to the foreign policy press, are all about what a steadfast ally America is in Asia, um, an ally towards Japan, Australia, other close partners there. I mean, how much whiplash is there here and which version of events is closer to the truth?
2: I think depending on you talk to, there are two really different views of how the Biden administration has handled this. Either it's another stumble, another piece of evidence that America is not a reliable ally, or it's a sign of the coherent, long-term, strategic plan to pivot towards Asia. And this is one way to do that, one of a number of different steps that the Biden administration will take. I happen to fall a bit more in the latter camp that, yes things probably could have been handled better with France. But it was impossible to pursue this deal without angering France. And that instead, this is the beginning um, and an important marker in what has been a long-heralded pivot towards Asia that has actually been quite hard to effectuate. But now we start to see it happening.
1: And an effort to patch up relations has been underway in New York, where Presidents Biden and Macron are both at the UN General Assembly. Daniel Franklin talks about that on our daily podcast, The Intelligence. In a moment, we'll go back to the summer of 2008, when a European crowd went wild for a rising political star from across the pond. But first, you know what's coming. It's that time when I remind you that you can and you should indeed subscribe to The Economist if you don't already. In this week's issue, me and Ridge, who was with us on Checks and Balance last week, reports from the last abortion clinic in Mississippi. If you missed it, do go back and listen to that episode, where we ask if the landmark Roe v Wade ruling may be overturned. Elsewhere in the paper, there's a piece on welcome changes to housing laws in California, and we consider the future of handshakes in a COVID-aware world. Checks and balance listeners can get the best offer at economist.com slash US pod. You'll find that in the notes for this episode. On a balmy July evening, 200,000 mostly young Berliners gathered on a grand boulevard in the centre of the city. There was a festival atmosphere, a murmur of excitement bubbling through the crowd as they sat on their friend's shoulders or strained necks to get the best view of the stage. Once the warm-up acts, the rock band and reggae artist had finished, it was time for the headliner to stride out in his smart business suit, powder blue tie, and Stars and Stripes lapel pin.
5: Thank you to the citizens of Berlin. And thank you to the people of Germany. It
1: was perhaps all a bit excessive for a man who, in the summer of 2008, was merely the junior senator for Illinois. This was Barack Obama in his rock star phase. The mania had followed the presidential candidate across the Atlantic on a whistle-stop tour through the Middle East and Europe. In his memoir, A Promised Land, Obama described the trip as an elaborate audition on the world stage, designed to silence critics who thought he wasn't ready to be a world leader. He arrived in Berlin, now a global rather than just a national icon.
5: And if we're honest with each other, we know that sometimes on both sides of the Atlantic, we have drifted apart and forgotten our shared destiny.
1: Obama acknowledged the tumult of the Bush years when American unilateralism had put European noses out of joint.
5: In Europe, the view that America is part of what has gone wrong in our world, rather than a force to help us make it right, has become all too common in America. There are voices that deride and deny the importance of Europe's role in our security and our future.
1: And he set out a vision for a renewed transatlantic relationship.
5: True partnership and true progress requires constant work and sustained sacrifice. They require sharing the burdens of development and diplomacy, of peace and progress. They require allies who will listen to each other, learn from each other, and most of all, trust each other. That is why America cannot turn inward. That is why Europe cannot turn inward. America has no better partner than Europe.
1: Obama started his presidency beloved by European voters and governments. But the burden of such lofty expectations was too great. There were rifts over the National Security Agency's surveillance operations, which extended to tapping the German Chancellor Angela Merkel's phone, and Libya, with Obama publicly criticising France and the UK for the mess left after Colonel Gaddafi's removal. In his eight years in office, the Hawaiian-born president started to look increasingly across the Pacific, to Asia, as the USA's focus became global rather than European.
5: People of Berlin and people of the world, the scale of our challenge is great. The road ahead will be long.
1: Looking back, that German summer night didn't mark the great renewal of affections the president prophesied. It was instead the final fling in an affair that had begun decades before.
5: Let us remember this history and answer our destiny, and remake the world once again. Thank you, Berlin. God bless you. Thank you.
1: John, in France, after the AUKUS Pact was signed, there was a lot of unhappiness, obviously, at the betrayal, but also a sense that America was turning its back on Europe. Is that fair? I mean, it strikes me that it's Not really. Or if America is turning its back on Europe, rather, it's doing so for perfectly good reasons. I mean, in the Cold War, America had reason to worry about its European allies, many of which were young democracies and had the Soviet Union just over the border. Now those threats are not so present. America can afford to look elsewhere and, and the threat comes from somewhere different. I think that's exactly right. I think it's
3: not just that America can afford to look elsewhere. It's that if America is going to maintain its geopolitical prominence, it has to look elsewhere. It has to look toward Asia. As you say, the Cold War was a largely European affair. The two world wars of the 20th century were fought largely in Europe. And so it made sense for America to put Europe at the heart of its security arrangements. That's no longer the case. You know, Europe is stable. It is also not as sort of central to the 21st century's great power battles as it was to the 20th. Um, And I think while Barack Obama is right that some in America may undervalue Europe's strategic importance, I think it's also fair to say that France may overvalue its own strategic importance. And what we saw was this display of pique at France being introduced to, to, to a new world in which it is less important than it was.
2: Yeah, it's funny. At the UN General Assembly this week, which is happening in New York, which is always every New Yorker's least favorite Week of the year, trying to get through the city is like trying to run through wet cement. But there was a lot of trash talk that happened on the sidelines. And you saw, certainly France tried to make this not a French issue, but a European one, that the betrayal by America of France is something that should worry all Europeans. The French foreign minister said, Europeans shouldn't be the rejects of the strategy chosen by the United States. And there was some pickup from other Europeans. The the president of the European Council, Charles Michel, who's Belgium's former prime minister, he was talking to reporters and he said, you know, the basic principles for an alliance are loyalty and transparency. And then he said, quote, we are observing a clear lack of transparency and loyalty from the United States. Um, Ursula von der Leyen was talking about how it's unacceptable that a member state be treated this way. But I think that there was some inevitable anger that needed to be displayed, but it points to a more existential question, John Fasman. to your point, which is what is the role of France and what is the role of Europe in this new order? And I think that a hint of that can be seen in the fact that already um, the ambassadors are back in place, in Washington at least. They have to cooperate with America. The push towards more autonomy within Europe is going to have limits. The push to have Europe set its own direction in terms of its defense interests and its long-term international agenda, that that will have its limits because it inevitably has to partner with the United States. And so you're going to have this anger and some push for autonomy, but that it will run into barriers that are simply practical.
3: As you say, the ambassadors are back in place in Washington. America and France have an alliance going back more than two centuries that rests on their founding ideals. It's not going to be broken over this event, but
1: these sorts of disputes crop up from time to time in the natural order of things. And as that Obama speech showed, I think there's a lot of nostalgia in this relationship and a lot of warm feeling on both sides. But certainly from the American side, Europe is just not as key to American security as it once was. And and that's a kind of a good thing, right? It's because Europe is no longer under existential threat from the Soviet Union. Okay, thanks both. We'll be back in a moment to hear why the AUKUS deal might actually be of some benefit to France's president, Emmanuel Macron.
0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: This isn't the first time, in fact, not even the first time this century, American France have fallen out. In 2003, the two came to diplomatic blows over the Iraq war. Sophie Pedder, the economist's Paris bureau chief, told me how the AUKUS Rift compares.
6: I think for me, the the best comparison is 2003 and the Iraq War when Chirac threatened to veto the invasion of Iraq at the uh, United Nations. You know, it was different because that was a, a divergence of points of view about the sense and wisdom of doing this and the risks involved and the interest to the parties concerned. This was about a secret deal between allies to keep out France. It's perceived as a betrayal, and that's why I think, you know, in a way one also has to reach back, in you know, a way back to Suez, 1956, the conclusion that the French drew, drew then. They just can't fully trust America.
1: It does seem like the treatment of France has been pretty outrageous over this. Can you give us a bit of a sense of how this has gone down in Paris over the past week or so?
6: Yes, I mean, I just don't think I've seen people in France, and when I say people, I mean uh, the foreign policy establishment, I mean commentators, I mean people in government, people around uh, the president, uh, Emmanuel Macron, as angry. There was just a fury when this emerged because the French hadn't been informed of this until hours before it was announced by President Biden. There was an element of humiliation, but I think, you know, above all, it's a question of breach of trust. That's what the French felt most let down by, um, that they thought at a time when When, you know, unity among allies couldn't be more important. And yes, of course, the French are as able as any other country to pursue a sort of ruthless self-interest when it comes to um, contracts, defence contracts, even alliances. I think that this particular blow was as hard as any uh, that that I've I've seen one ally land on another for a very long time. And that's, I think, what explains this intense anger.
1: Sophie, President Emmanuel Macron has long been keen on more strategic autonomy for Europe, an ability to act independently of the US, of the United Kingdom and other allies. Does this strengthen his argument? I mean, it seems it does. And what in practice would that mean? I mean, is the rest of the EU that bothered or are they content to continue um, to perhaps complain about America's dominance in this area, but not do very much about
6: it? It's a very good question. And it's one that, you know, the French have to ask themselves all the time, because although some people have suggested that this rift uh, could shift French foreign policy, I don't actually think that that's the case. I think what it does is confirm to Emmanuel Macron the analysis that he had already made. And that is because, you know, Europe faced with a rising China on one side and a Uh, a pivot to Asia on the part of America on the other, has to learn and give itself the tools to defend itself and do more itself in the defense and security realm. That has been his argument for the last four years, ever since he was elected. And it's not something that he has sort of invented or come to as a result of either President Trump or, or Biden. So this rift, I think, reaffirms or confirms to him that that is what Europe has to do. The great difficulty for France has always been that uh, Europe's divided on this. Uh, Not everyone shares France's uh, military culture. I mean, Germany notably doesn't. France is very happy to put boots on the ground in places like the Sahel. Other countries are not. Other countries are not as as, as willing to spend money on defence and meet the sort of minimum 2% NATO requirement, 2% of GDP that NATO advises or would, would like all allies to spend. And then, there are small countries that, frankly, would be happy to keep going with the NATO security guarantee, and particularly those countries that are close to the Russian border. So I think the difficulty is persuading other Europeans of the importance of building a form, some sort of form of European defence. Um, and, and as Macron has always stressed, that this uh, this is not against NATO. This is, is supposed to be complementary to NATO.
1: Sophie, is anyone familiar with the plot of Hamilton will know France is America's oldest ally. Presidents Biden and Macron had a call this week to try and patch up relations. Need this damage the relationship between the two countries, the alliance between the two countries? I mean, is it something that has been a real blow, but actually the relationship is strong enough to, to get past it? Or do you think that it will you know, change France's behavior meaningfully uh, in the future?
6: I think it will make France more distrustful. Uh, It already was up to a point, um, but I think it will make the French very wary um, and that could spill over into other sorts of uh, areas, you know. Ultimately, France considers, and Emmanuel Macron in particular considers, America an absolutely key ally. And you know, it's not in France's interest to fall out irreversibly with the United States. So, and, and Macron knows that. But I do think it will make it difficult. I think that in in the phone call that the two leaders had this week, it was very interesting because I think uh, one can feel that President Biden was was really re- trying to reach out to patch things up. There was a concession to the fact that the three countries ought to have reached out or at least be more transparent with France. The key phrase to me was that America recognised that these efforts that the French have been making to build this sort of European strategic autonomy when complementary to NATO, that's the key phrase. So I think that will mean a lot to the French. They wanted... A little bit more support from America on that point. And ultimately, the, the value of that relationship is too much, uh, it was too great for the French to um, let it leave too much and too lasting damage.
1: So, Charlotte, the French political class, which has always had a streak of hostility towards the US, to it is now convinced that America is unreliable, can't be trusted, and so forth. Does America have an image problem with other allies, or is France special?
2: So it's interesting, because basically America's allies abroad, the image of America, the perception of America rose pretty steadily from the 60s through to 2000. And then you had a lot of volatility that happened through the Bush era and the Obama era, where... um, the impression of America absolutely plunged um, during the Bush era. There was a lot of sympathy after 9-11, but then quickly uh, opinion soured. And then rebounded with with Obama, sank again with Trump, seems to be on the up and up um, with Biden. And it's pretty uniform, actually. So France, um, at least at the start of the year, before this most recent fallout, um, was at about the same level and actually a bit more favorable in its opinions toward the America, America as an ally, just a little bit above the UK, uh, Spain, and Germany, according to research from Pew. But generally, you see this perception, which is that um, during recent Republican presidencies, European allies' opinion of America has declined and then it's risen again under Democratic presen- presidents. But this comes with a grain of salt, which is that even as most European allies view America favorably and view, uh, Obama, and then Biden quite favorably, across all presidencies, there seems to be an understanding, which is that America's really looking out for its own interests. And the degree to which it takes Europe's interest to heart is quite minimal. Um, and that's reflected pretty uniformly across the polling. So I would say that the arc is kind of toward disillusionment, where you have um, a favorable opinion generally toward America with a growing understanding as Sophie and Daniel have each articulated, that uh, there's a limit to the degree to which America is going to be thinking about Europe, um, making a strategy that's designed around Europe. Um, Instead, America will have its own strategy, as the French foreign minister pointed out in New New York this week. And occasionally, a European ally may be collateral damage as America seeks to pursue its own interests.
1: John, one other thing Sophie told me was that The nuclear propulsion technology that the Australians are getting from the U.S. as part of AUKUS could easily have been bought from France. I mean, France is a specialist in that technology. It has a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier, submarines, I think, also. And so the decision to go with the U.S. rather than France on this really does look like it's all about strengthening that alliance with America in the Pacific and getting a sort of long-term commitment out of the U.S., to the security of allies, American allies in that region.
3: I think that's exactly right. I think ultimately what you saw in this deal was a competing set of anxieties, right? That it's true that Australia could have just as easily purchased nuclear technology from France, but they wanted an American security guarantee in effect. So this was a strategic and geopolitical anxiety on Australia's part. In France... I wonder if there isn't more commercial anxiety than is being formally discussed now. I mean, France has a massive defense industry. They've got not just Naval Group, they've got Thales, they've got Dassault, they've got Arcus, they've got a lot of companies that make a lot of money exporting arms and military technology around the world. And in a lot of those companies, the French government has a stake. This was a huge blow to one of its biggest companies. And I wonder if France while I think that it's not wrong to feel that it has been treated badly and it's not wrong to express these geopolitical anxieties, I wonder if this isn't also a broader concern among its defense companies that perhaps the Asian market is going to tilt more toward America than it has in the past.
2: I think that absolutely is the case in which Macron needs to be both looking out for France's foreign policy interests, but clearly also his domestic constituencies. There are a lot of jobs involved in these industries, as you point out. So, absolutely, I think that you're right, John Fasman. But one other thing I just want to add is about Europe's perception of America. Clearly, there's America as a military force. As an actor on the geopolitical stage as a superpower that has been the thrust of most of our conversation. But also part of what factors into the way Europeans feel about America, I think, not being a European myself, but is also about Biden's domestic agenda, that this is a president who takes climate change seriously and will pass a serious domestic climate policy that will participate in international climate talks in a way obviously that his predecessor Donald Trump did not. Um, that this is a president who will think more expansively about America's role in dealing with refugees as we continue to have crises unfolding in the Middle East and Central America and elsewhere, that on a number of different fronts, this is a democratic president who shares European values in a way that President Trump did not. And I think one thing that will be interesting is there was a lot of dismay, I I think, among people in Europe and as we've seen in the approval ratings for America when Donald Trump was president. And there's a question of whether America can be functional on some of these other issues as well. So there's a, a broader question of what kind of ally America might be, but also whether America is just an example of a country that can work and can achieve some of these goals domestically and internationally that are priorities that cross borders like climate like immigration, like like refugees. And I think that is a very much an open question for the Biden administration, whether these grand goals that it set out can be achieved and can be a repudiation to Donald Trump's legacy or whether actually America's just stuck in a rut and won't be able to move forward.
1: I think you're absolutely right about that, Charlotte. I think you're right to point out that European voters at least care more about climate change than they care about security, I think. <laughs> And I think you're also right to point out that part of Emmanuel Macron's peak over this is part of a performance for domestic consumption in protection of an important French industry. Charlotte, I know the real reason you've come back is so that you can participate in the quiz. And I have a quiz for you before I let you and John go. In the run-up to the Iraq War in 2003, French fries were famously renamed Freedom Fries, at least in part of America – The Economist first mentioned French fries in March 1965 in a piece about the Howard Johnson restaurant chain, which was then the largest in America, and its expansion westward. A constant stream of families passed through each Howard Johnson, consuming hamburger and French fried potatoes and other standbys of the American diet, we wrote. Which 1859 novel about the French Revolution contains the earliest known reference to French fries in English literature? The Red and the Black.
2: I'll try to provide consistency from my um, prior stint to quiz Runnings and say I have absolutely no idea, but I defer to John Fassman. I'm amazed that Hojo was the biggest restaurant chain at the time. I'm still reeling from that fact.
1: Yeah, that's pretty remarkable, isn't it? It was A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. One of those cities, of course, being Paris. Dickens wrote of husky chips of potato fried with some reluctant drops of oil. Dickens first visited America in 1842. He was pretty unimpressed by the nation as a whole, but he did take to the first city he stopped in. In his travel book, American Notes, he wrote, The city is a beautiful one. The private dwelling houses are, for the most part, large and elegant. The shop's extremely good, and the public buildings handsome. The state house is built upon the summit of a hill, which rises gradually at first, and afterwards by a steep ascent, almost from the water's edge. Which city was he talking about?
2: I would either Boston or Providence.
1: Yeah, I was going to guess Boston. Yeah, Boston is the correct answer. Dickens was more impressed by Boston than you are, Fasman. He didn't take so. I ser- feel like
3: you're trolling me with that question. <laughs>
1: Uh, Dickens, however, did not take so kindly to Washington, D.C., describing it as home to despicable trickery at elections, underhanded tamperings with public officers, and cowardly attacks upon opponents, with scurrilous newspapers for shields and hired pens for daggers. So, not much has changed. <laughs> John, talking of Boston, I think we will have your podcast from there next week.
3: Yeah, I was in Boston last week for a story I wanted to do for a long time about the relationship between progressive prosecutors and police. I think it's going to be a great episode and I'm looking forward to discussing it with you both next week.
2: Boston is the best big town in America. What? I say that as a withering put down, John.
3: Oh, town. Okay, got it. That's fair.
2: I would say or so Boston is the best modestly sized village in America. Would that be more to your liking?
3: Yeah, it's just it's but it's still not
1: true. <laughs> to be continued. Okay, thank you Charlotte. Thank you John. Thanks John. Thank you. If you like the podcast, please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at Thanks to our producers, John Shields, Harriet Noble, Nicholas Rolfast. In the meantime, thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week.